everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Seek Outside podcast. My name is Dennis. Uh, today, Kevin is exploring the Southwest. I believe this is in Arizona. Uh, so it's just going to be me. And our guest today is Mark um, Penning, Penninger. Penninger, correct? Did I say that correct. correctly? Correctly. All right. Yep. Um, in Mark, let's. I, I would imagine we're going to talk a little bit, um, or at least I would like to talk to you in, in kind of the notes that we shared before the podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about wildfire today and 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 what that means and, and kind of the intricacies of of wildfires. But can you first give us a little background uh, in your history with kind of wildfires, or or at least your your history and and why why you might know a few things? Sure. Uh, so I'm actually a wildlife biologist, and I, I worked 30 years with the U.S. Forest Service, which is a department of the U.S. Department of Interior, or excuse me, U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, and as a wildlife biologist, I worked on a variety of things from timber sales, road building, recreational developments, uh, grazing permits, and fire. Uh, in the Forest Service, there's a rich uh, tradition of firefighting fire prevention, uh, prescribed fire. And uh, there's lots of reasons why the Forest, is, Forest Service is so heavily involved in the fire, fire world. But uh, just uh, as an employee with the Forest Service, regardless of what your area of expertise or your duties are, everyone steps up to help with the fire, uh, with fire suppression when the need, when the need arises. So, in Oregon here, in especially Northeast Oregon, our fire season generally starts in late June. And 20 to 30 years ago, that season would run through mid-September, sometimes into late September, early October. Now that fire season runs on into November some years. And uh, when a wildfire uh, starts, uh, it's kind of all hands on deck if, if the resources that we have on hand are or have been deployed to other places than folks like myself as biologists, uh, our civil culturists, our other, other people in other areas of expertise are called up to help with the fire effort. And so okay. through, does that, does that mean that um, like, are you, are you trained in fire suppression then is, is that kind of a, you know, I, I guess yes. I imagine being called up to work meeting that you're out helping, uh, you know, cut, lines and, and, and maybe, uh, inspect places. I mean, I guess I don't know too much about it, but yes. So the minimum amount of, uh, fire training that everyone gets, who's going to actually be out on a fire is, uh, it used to be called guard school. I think they call it fire school. Now it's basically a week training where you learn uh, just enough to be dangerous about, uh, <laughs> fire behavior, fire behavior, uh, why the forest service tries to put out fires, uh, when and why we choose not to put out fires sometimes. Um, when I say we, it's, a, it's tough to break out of that uh, habit. When I was an employee of the agency for 30 years, I'm no longer uh, with them, but it's still sure. hard to break that habit. <laughs> they, sure, sure. Uh, but anyway, you also learn uh, a lot of safety, uh, uh, safety considerations for, for fighting fire, how to dig fire line, um, how to pump water from small pumps, et cetera. And uh, so that's kind of the minimum training that everyone gets who deals with fire. In addition to that, there's a lot of specialized training. 
And so my role in fire over the years has been, it's been pretty tertiary to my main duties, but for many years I did help uh, in whatever capacity I could. So for several years, I was a, an aerial observer. So once a, a, a lightning storm would come over, the next day I would go up in a fixed wing aircraft with a contracted pilot and we would fly the storm's path, uh, a given piece of landscape, and I would look for smokes which is basically where lightning had struck a tree, a live tree or a dead tree and uh, ignited a fire. And oftentimes those just smolder and there's not actual active flames coming up, but there might be, be smoldering smoke, only visible from certain angles sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so then I would, I would map that smoke. I would call in the fire to someone uh, in dispatch. And uh, sometimes I would stay there and circle that, that smoke until a, uh, an engine got there and I could lead them in by voice radio right to the smoke. Cause a lot of times that smoke might be a few hundred yards from a road and the engines parked on the road, you know, uh, fairly closely, but they can't see it. Sure. But uh, sure. from the aerial view, I can see everything plainly. Yeah. Um, also, I also dug fire line. Uh, I was a class B uh, sawyer, a uh, run a chainsaw on some fires and then I uh, did some trainee roles uh, for things like camp manager and resource advisor. So okay. those were my fire duties, but really on my 30 year career, those represented a relatively small fraction of my experience, you know, 10 to 20% over that whole career was, you know, involving fire. In fire. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and I kind of, you know, so, as far as as fires go, I have a. I was up in Steamboat Springs one time. Uh, my wife and I were doing a, a bike packing loop up there, and we and we chose this specific trail, and we started going. Uh, and and for those that don't know, Glen or Steamboat's probably about four hours from Grand Junction where we're located. So I'm not super familiar with the area, right? And we get up there and we we pick this trail, and it was early summer, June. So, uh, there hasn't been a lot of traffic yet, but they had, they've had like in a, a very intense beetle kill. So all these dead trees standing like, like everywhere, the forest just kind of looks almost dead. Uh, and then all of those trees from the snow loads and stuff, they were, they were tipped over. And so we ended up, it took us an hour to go a mile on our bicycles, trying to just go up and over trees and down. And I mean, it was, it was just kind of a, it was very difficult, um, you know, and, and my thought instantly was like, well, why don't they just either either start this place on fire or I can't imagine it would take much. You know, I would imagine one storm in the summertime would just ignite the whole thing because it's just dead trees, standing dead trees that are very, very dry. You know, and, and I was I was just I was kind of taken aback as, as to one, why it hadn't burned yet or, or why they wouldn't burn it. Um, do you have any, any insight yeah. into that? Yeah. Um, let me back up one step before we, before I try to address that question specifically, you know, the reason we're even having this conversation is uh, Kevin contacted me a couple months ago when uh, historical scale mega fires were happening in Oregon, Western Oregon and and California and a couple significant ones in Colorado. Mm -hmm. Um, very, very fast moving, large wildfires that affected a lot of people's lives and burned a lot of homes and businesses and human infrastructure and 
uh, there were also human fatalities involved. So fire was on everyone's radar, particularly those who live in the West. So um, that always uh, ignites conversation over uh, could the forest be better managed? Uh, is climate change affecting this? Uh, should we be continuing to build homes and buildings in the forest, wildland urban interface uh, where we have a history of them burning up? All mm -hmm. those questions become part of the conversation in the media, social media, et cetera. And so um, you bring up a good question. When th There's several places around the West that have immense areas of public lands with dead or dying trees. And it's a, it really, it's very, it's very different depending on where you go. I've seen it in Western Montana. I've seen it in parts of Oregon. Um, and you mentioned the example there in Colorado, each one probably has its own set of circumstances. Um, but some of the things that play there are one is a, a warming, a warming trend in our climate. Um, I don't want to open a can of worms about whether uh, climate change is happening or not, because I see it happening in my work. Um, as, as far as why it's happening, I don't want to engage in that one. Um, sure. But the uh, the fact is, we've seen fire seasons, which uh, you know the fire fire agencies or natural resource agencies that deal with fire, they have an official fire season that they recognize each year and they declare it open at a certain time of year. And then it closes at a certain time of year, basically. And, um, when I started my career over 30 years ago here in Oregon, uh, particularly Northeast Oregon, that fire season went from usually late June, like I said, I, th I think earlier into late September, early October. Um, and that's, that varies depending on where you are in the, in, around the country. Um, today, that fire season has increased on an average of 40 days in some places, as much as 80 days now longer. So a month to over two months longer of the year uh, period during the year, we can expect wildfire conditions that, uh, that we feel could endanger people and property. And uh, if we're going to minimize that, uh, the, the damage, then suppression tactics should be, should be used. Um, now, as far as the dead forest, uh, with a warming climate, uh, you end up with some species of insects and diseases that tend to kill trees. And some of those are now, uh, with a warmer climate, are allowed to, uh, to basically function for a longer period of the year uh, in higher ele elevations and on different aspects than they would under a, a cooler, moister climate. So we've seen bark beetles uh, that are killing trees at higher elevations. They're affecting species like white bark pine in some of their some of its range, which they used to rarely be affected by by bark beetles. Hmm. Um, and on uh, cooler north and northeast aspects, we're seeing an expansion of the the effects on those slopes as well, and at higher latitudes uh, on the globe. So those are indications that. Um, these insects are, are able to uh, basically kill more trees in a shorter period of time than they would have historically. And that often outpaces an agency's ability or the funding that's provided by Congress to get in there and treat before or as the event's happening. Um, it, it simply, they're outpaced by the, 
the pace that the trees are dying. So, uh, you know, some folks like to like to blame the environmental groups for suing the suing the land management agencies and hmm. preventing uh, sound forest management from happening. That is a part of the equation, but I think the probably the most important thing that affects whether the Forest Service or any other agencies logs an area or not boils down to economics. Um, and parts of uh, part of economic considerations are the size and the quality of the material. And a lot of times within months of a tree dying, it loses uh, a lot of its market value. Um, a lot of these areas have younger, smaller trees that are not nearly as valuable as as a you know a slightly larger diameter tree. Mm. Um, another economic consideration in there is access. Um, if it's an area that's unroaded, um, then new roads may need to be built to get in there, or hel helicopter logging is a possibility in some places, but it's very cost prohibitive in a lot of cases because it's so expensive. Um, mm. So, and companies who buy and sell timber, uh, economics, you know, everything revolves around economics. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times you will see dead trees standing out there on public land and they're there because of various reasons, but many times, uh, it was not economical to get them out in a timely fashion. And that's why they're still there. Got it. And uh, any, any questions on that before we move on to a yeah, you had brought up um, you, you had brought up suppression, you know, and and what I think that's a it's a hot topic, you know, and about whether we should when these fires start burning, whether we should stop them, right from mm -hmm. from happening, uh, maybe even just happening, or or once they've started, we work very very hard to make them stop. Uh, just so, I mean, you know. I'm going to kind of play devil's advocate or, or whatnot, but theoretically they're just going to start again next year in the same spot because there's not a whole lot. Like we're not going in there removing any of the fuel. We're not going in there taking down those trees. We just made it stop at this, at this road or, or this fire line. And then next year it's just going to get a lightning strike on that side of the road. And again, it's going to continue. Like, why don't we just let it burn? You know, like, is there something yeah. to suppression Oh, that's a huge, a huge uh, topic that basically back in, uh, uh, what was it, 1910, the big burn, they call it, was a enormous uh, wildfire that burned from eastern uh, Washington all the way over to western uh, Montana. And the Forest Service was only, I think, five years old at that time. Um, several people died in that fire. It was an unprecedented wildfire event that basically uh, helped shape policy and agencies' missions. Uh, and and uh, I don't know, it set the tone for many decades on how people should be reacting to wildfire in the West. And at that time, uh, we didn't have uh, fire sciences uh, to rely on that tell us, well, fire is a natural uh, beneficial disturbance event in most Western forest. Um, in some types of forest, it's way more uh, important or more frequent than others. Others, it's very less frequent, but it still plays a role in shaping a healthy functioning forest. Uh, but we didn't know that then. Uh, and mm -hmm. 
the public after losing uh, small towns and a lot of lives and, and valuable forest, um, they wanted to see fires put out. And so the Forest Service and other agencies did a really good job of putting out fires as fast as they started for uh, nearly 100 years. Well, that what that's allowed the landscape to do is build up more and more trees, more and more forest fuels. Um, so if you were to look at old photographs from the uh, 1920s, 1930s, and then compare the landscape photographs of today, you'll see that the landscape was much more patchy back then uh, because of smaller, more regular wildfires, you ended up breaking up the contiguity of the fuel loading. And so there were more uh, open meadows, uh, open young forest, uh, a mosaic with old forest. With, but as the Forest Service and others have been so successful putting out fires for so long, it's allowed many of those gaps to fill back in with trees and get mature. And some of those trees start to die and fall. And so you end up with this enormous accumulation of fuels, uh, forest litter on the floor, which is when I say litter, I'm referring to dead needles and small twigs and lichens that fall on the forest floor. All of those are types of fuels that, that fuel a fire. And so, and now, um, now that we know a lot more about the value of fire and how fire behaves under certain uh, circumstances, we see that it's uh, beneficial a lot of times to let a wildfire go when it starts. Now, if, if human life and property are at risk, um, I think all the agencies involved will do what everything they can to suppress that fire to protect life and property. But the agencies have really come a long way in considering what conditions uh, would uh, should we allow fires to just burn and uh, or back way off with suppression tactics and go to the next road or the next ridge miles away uh, to start uh, putting in fuel breaks instead of trying to attack the fire directly and and keep it as small as possible. And but, you know, something that took over 100 years to accumulate and uh, get into the condition it's in can't be fixed overnight. So. The agencies that deal with the, the agencies that manage public land, they're uh, they can only do as much as Congress funds them to do, and they are chipping away strategically at uh, treating stands, treat stands of trees, thinning them uh, to reduce the uh, the tree density, to alter the tree composition so that the trees on that particular site are best suited to survive fires when they occur. Mm -hmm. um, and break up that contiguity of the fuel bed across the landscape to keep fires smaller and more mosaic when they do occur. Got it. Um, yeah, that, that's a interesting. So we had in just outside of Grand Junction this year, um, the Pine Gulch fire, which was the largest in Colorado, I think for like two weeks, and then it got surpassed by another fire in, in Colorado. But um, it was on kind of a desolate piece of land with with no roads and they you know i mean they pretty much just let it burn right it was very hard to get to yep. there was no no houses no you know there wasn't there wasn't any threat to uh property or or lives uh, and they picked some strategic it, it, at least looking at a map some strategic roads and just waited for it to get there essentially 
you know? Um, In a lot of cases, that makes a lot of sense. And I think the agencies learned from uh, several different catastrophes where firefighters lost their lives to really step back and look at that landscape, look at prevailing weather, um, and look at resources that are at risk and, and ask the question, do we really need to put firefighters in there close to this thing to keep it small uh, and run the risk of losing lives? And I, I'm glad to see that uh, most of them are deciding, no, we can easily back off here and uh, reduce that risk to, to lives and really not uh, put other uh, infrastructure and homes and things at risk. So it's a question that every firefighter asks now, who are met, those who manage fires. And it's a, I think it's a really positive trend in the way the agencies are going. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had, you had talked about it a little bit that some, um, some forests benefit from being burned. Some forests do not benefit from being burned. What, what about wildlife? Like are there certain, certain wildlife that, you know, that are that benefit a lot from having a forest kind of kind of burn either either you know in a big way or a small way or or vice versa are there some that get hurt yeah you know we probably should have mentioned uh or emphasized this point a little bit more right at the beginning of this podcast because kevin asked me to to be a guest because of my background as a wildlife biologist and, and because those big fires were going on, he wanted to know what effect is this going to have on wildlife and the public yep. land and the public land hunter. And the wildlife uh, portion of this discussion is where uh, more of my, my, my expertise lies. Um, all we've just shared over the last 15 minutes or so has been things I've picked up by working with very qualified and trained fire professionals over my career. Um, and we get into kind of a little more of my forte here. Um, So when people ask me, is fire good for wildlife? You say it's good for forest, but is it good for wildlife? Um, You can't really simplify the question like that. And uh, I think uh, it's useful to discuss species in not just individual species, but groups of species. And wildlife biologists often talk about generalist versus specialist wildlife species. So a generalist would be um, a species like deer, elk, many of the migratory birds, uh, some of the forest grouse, coyotes, bear, you know, those type of animals that basically are, are uh, widely distributed and can tolerate or require a broad range of environmental conditions to to get all of their life history needs taken care of. Sure. A, a black bear can is... is right at home eating a donut as much as he is uh, scraping uh, scraping <laughs> for slugs under a rock or something. You know? yeah. Exactly. And uh, that's an evolutionary benefit to that species, being able to be flexible in both its uh, diet and the, its cover needs, uh, et cetera. Um, and so often those generalist species that, that uh, do well in a mosaic of habitats tend to be benefited by, by fires because fire will, can come through an area. And if it's not extremely intense to kill everything and, and just, and damage soils, then fire usually does a lot of things for, uh, as far as, uh, conditioning grasses, 
where it burns old, older wolfy grasses that have died and rejuvenates new grass growth um, and forbs and herbs. Um, shrubs are often rejuvenated by fire. You'll see older decadent shrubs that are highly palatable to deer and elk and moose uh, and other ungulates. Um, if they're not burned uh, for many, many years, they can become very decadent, they lose vigor, and they can die back. Well, fire will burn those dead parts and often uh, trigger a response to, for that plant to flourish. And they come back with highly palatable leaves and stems. Um, along with that, you get, a, you get the structure that a lot of songbirds will nest in or grouse can use as cover or grouse can use the berries and other birds use the berries on those shrubs for, for forage. So uh, it's basically effect, the effect of rejuvenating, uh, creating a mosaic and some edge. Uh, you probably heard the term edge is a real important one in wildlife. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, re I'm referring to natural type edges between a burned area and an unburned area or a severely burned area and a lightly burned area. A lot of species do well in that zone where they have simultaneous access to forage and escape cover and reproductive habitat all in a very small area. Got it. Can so, yeah, sorry. Can you can you just give it an example of a of a specialist then? Like who who would be a yeah. specialist? So I was going to move into that one next. Um, okay. So specialists tend to have a very narrow, very uh, tolerate or require a very narrow range of environmental conditions. Uh, one that pops to mind is the northern spotted owl. Um, you know that one was in the news from the early or mid eighties through the current, and. Uh, they're a highly specialized species that requires mature old growth, uh, temperate rainforest in the Pacific Northwest to reproduce and find its forage and all of its needs. Um, its cousin, the great gray owl or the barred owl, they would be generalist that can use a much broader range of, of habitat conditions. Uh, other, other specialists might be like redback vole or marbled murrelet. Uh, American Martin, uh, formerly called the Pine Martin, you know, those species tend to have a, a, just a narrower range of conditions that they they need to find everything they need to live and reproduce. And um, those habitats, they need, in order for those species to exist at viable levels, those habitats need to be quite stable. I'm not going to say stagnant but uh, or static, but fairly stable and in large enough amounts on the landscape at any point in time to allow that species to, to persist. Um, that's not to say fire doesn't set back or change that those species habitat because it does. But historically, I think it did it at a scale that the species could still tolerate because it left intact large enough patches for them to function. Sure. When, when you add fire suppression and decades and decades of fuel accumulation, you add that with a warming climate and an increase in human-caused fires during the hottest, driest time of year, we end up seeing larger patches of that uh, more stable habitat burned and set way back in succession. And so those specialist species tend to not benefit as well or at all from, uh, you know, from large, intense wildfires. Mm. Um, it tends to be quite detrimental to them. Um, and then... We really hadn't touched on intensity of fires, but um, intensity is influenced by weather conditions, relative humidity, 
and fuel buildup, basically, and topography to a certain extent. And most of the fires that benefit wildlife are lower to moderate intensity fires that burn in a mosaic. They tend to leave soils uh, relative, relatively healthy. Um, they don't consume all of the duff layer off of the forest floor, but they, they create patches in that duff layer. Whereas a, a highly intense fire uh, can be really damaging to not just wildlife, but to the habitat and the soils for a long, long period of time. Uh, when all the organic material on the forest floor is consumed, all of the large woody material, all the trees are consumed by an intense wildfire. You tend to get hydrophobic soils. It damages, changes the chemical makeup of the upper surface layer of soils. And basically those soils won't take uh, water in. So when it rains or snows in the fall following one of these fires, you tend to get massive runoff uh, because that, that soil is not permeable to the moisture. And you end up with landslides, uh, a lot of sediment delivered to streams that kills fish or uh, damages fish habitat. And so those, those events uh, are quite detrimental to even not just the specialist group of species, but the generalist also. So, and they, they, also they also tend to not burn in mosaics. They tend to burn in large patches, which is also not desirable for wildlife. Okay. And, and just as an example, I guess, if you had to say most of the fires that burn, you know, that burn this past fire season, are they, are they intense fires? Are they, you know, are they doing harm essentially because of all this fuel and because of how, how long and how big they can burn? Okay. So, uh, it's tough to talk about them in general terms because every fire has its own unique set of conditions so from the aerial images that I've seen of the fires that occurred this year, you will see patches, large patches of intense, contiguous wildfire that were detrimental to most species and soils. But around the perimeter and some inclusions in and around those intense fires, you'll also see a mosaic of fires, of less intense fires. So in, in what little bit I know about some of these larger fires, um, it's probably safe to say that they are a combination of both beneficial mosaic, low to moderate intensity burns with patches of larger patches of intense, more detrimental fire conditions. Does hmm. that make sense? It does. It does. And I'm just wondering, I guess my follow-up would be like, wh what makes them more intense? Like what are those environmental factors? Is it just what the humidity was that day in, you know, in and around the fire, uh, well, you know, it's, it's multiple factors and humidity, relative humidity is a huge one. Um, I'll use one example. I, I don't, uh, actually remember the name of this fire, Oregon, Western Oregon had several really large ones, uh, from the Cascades toward the Willamette Valley this summer. And, um, many of those started when we had an episode of east winds, which were dry, warm winds coming from the east instead of from the ocean that brings slightly cooler and more uh, higher humidities. Mm -hmm. um, high fuel buildups in those forests, in some of those forests, um, the warm, dry east winds and high winds, 40, 40 mile an hour winds was uh, quoted in a lot of these and higher in some cases. 
Uh, those things combined with uh, there being an ignition source, in some cases, I, uh, most of those were hum human-caused fires from what I heard. Some were, uh, may have been power started by down power lines, mm. probably because of wind and limbs falling on the limbs. Mm. Um, so, you know, without an ignition source, those conditions would have just been a windy, a windy few days. Mm. But when you combine... Uh, the fuel loading and patterns that were on the landscape with the high winds and an ignition source, you had all three parts of the fire triangle to create basically a perfect storm for fast moving uh, detrimental wildfires. So it, it, it's it. all those factors and the relative humidity one is a real important one. Got it. Temperature, temperature is another one, just the ambient temperature that dries fuels also contributes. Got it. So it would it might, just in my thought, if nobody knows the um, uh, uh, the climate around Grand Junction here in Colorado, um, it's going to be very very dry, hundred degrees for many many days in the summertime. I would imagine most fires that happen here are fairly detrimental, uh, just because the, the humidity is going to be in the uh, in the single digits, you know, four to 8% mm -hmm. most of the time, you know, it's very, very, very dry. Um, so, yeah. so anything that starts around here seems like it would be really harsh. Um, how long does it take for something like that? I mean, I got, you know, relative, like how long does it take for a, for those soils then that kind of have this layer on them that don't allow them to absorb water? Like how long are we talking like 10 years, 50 years until they can maybe break loose of that and start, start growing and start coming back. You know, I, I don't want to try to get into a delve into an area where I don't have particular expertise. Um, we have really good soil scientists out there that know this way better than I do. Uh, but I've personally seen areas that have burned really hot and 30 years later, um, there's still some residual damage to those soils. Uh, I think it, it could take many decades for organic material from new vegetation to start growing and building up on that site to start changing the way that that top layer of soil functions. But I, I don't want to try to get too deep into an area sure. that I just don't have expertise sure. in. Sure. Um, uh, back to your, your comment about Grand Junction and being dry. Um, here where I live in La Grande, Oregon, we get about 17 inches of precipitation a year. The majority of that is in snow snowfall, and uh, so we're quite dry here. Mm -hmm. And those uh, the amount of moisture varies depending on the elevation. But in the drier portions of the West, the drier end of forest, um, it's really important to allow fires that happen or to use prescribed fire as a tool in the spring and fall when we know weather conditions are gonna allow us to either keep them smaller or control them a little more. Um, because when they happen during those peak fire season times, when it's really hot and dry and potentially windy, there's nothing that humans can do to really influence some of those fires. And uh, I've heard them refer to mega, as mega fires. I've heard them referred to as the 2% conditions. So only a, about 2% of the time do you end up with the hot, dry, high winds, uh, hot, yeah, high temperatures. Hmm. It's those conditions where a lot of the fires started this summer that um, 
people can only do so much with aircraft and field and uh, ground crews. But in the end, it's going to be a weather event that eventually comes in the fall that's going to slow down and put those fires out. Yeah. Um, th those are the ones that uh, are the most concerning and the ones that are becoming more and more common uh, as we experience a drier, warmer climate. Are, are, and, and you call those the 2% fires or the 2%? The 2% conditions uh, is yeah. what I've heard them referred to as. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Um, yeah, I, I think the the Pine Gulch fire here uh, north of Grand Junction, it doubled in size overnight, and they they said it was just a perfect alignment of forty mile an hour winds in the in in yeah. the direction of the canyons, like they faced straight down the canyons, and so overnight it went from, you know, it, it just it doubled overnight. It was it was kind of big. Um, that yeah, and, and my my question then along those lines is. is what does that do for wildlife in those areas with these kind of very intense burns? Do they leave? Are they going to, are they going to be like, Oh, well, this is, there's no food here. Essentially we have to move. So the, you know, we should probably consider the effects to wildlife in those intense burn areas in, uh, in terms of what happens while the fire's going and the direct mortality or indirect mortality that happens then and then once the smoke clears and uh, uh, the fire's out, what does it mean to wildlife? So yeah. initially, some wildlife dies. Um, there's a lot of species that have the ability to move. The highly mobile species around the perimeter are obviously going to run and move or fly and get out of the way because these species have evolved with fire for thousands of years. Um, you know, we shouldn't feel like we necessarily have to take care of them, even though we, we help when we can. Um, sure. They've dealt with fire. They've dealt with fire uh, and have evolved, evolved with that disturbance. But unfortunately, sometimes in these big, fast moving fires, wildlife gets trapped. And you hear about instances of entire herds of elk or bighorn sheep in some cases uh, where it burns up into the alpine or deer um, and livestock, et cetera. Um, dying in wildfires. It, it happens. But a lot of species from rabbits to uh, insects, uh, amphibians, snakes, etc., cetera, uh, other reptiles have an ability to burrow under rocks in uh, talus slopes, uh, some retreat to water uh, or moist riparian areas where fire is not going to burn as hot in some cases. Um, and a lot of those species surprisingly will survive now, when they emerge hmm. after the fire, they may find conditions that are not conducive to life there anymore. And so if they're mobile and they're able to move and not get preyed upon by some, some opportunistic predator, then they may start recolonizing the next closest habitat they, they encounter. So the mobility of a species and how many of the individuals survive these events kind of dictates how quickly the surrounding forest is going gonna, is gonna to recover in terms of wildlife. Long-term wise, um, those specialist species we talked about, let's say that it's an animal like a, like a pileated woodpecker that requires a quite a, a pretty large tree or snag to nest in. Um, if, in order for it to reproduce, it's going to have to find uh, a forest with those conditions for it to find the insects to forage on and the proper size trees with the rot conditions in the interior of those trees and snags 
to make roost cavities and nest cavities to make a living and reproduce and perpetuate the species. Well, fortunately, a pileated woodpecker is highly mobile, so they can fly and usually find that type of habitat if it's in the area. But in the meantime, they're really vulnerable to being killed by things like goshawks or mm. great horned owls. Uh, they're a large, showy, noisy bird, and they're really vulnerable to some of those predators, avian predators. Sure. So, so uh, there's a time those very open burned conditions are going to make some species highly vulnerable to predation. Um, but over over the next few years, if the if the soils had not been too damaged, you're going to start seeing sprouting of under understory vegetation, uh, and then and shrub. So shrubs. Uh, forbs, grasses, herbs will start coming in. And those species of uh, some of those generalist species like songbirds, the deer, the elk, the bear, etc., rabbits, hares, will start using that habitat as it starts to recover. And uh, some species, I'll, I'll use snowshoe hare as an example. Um, they use, use habitat based on what it provides for them at the time of year they need certain resources. So if you can imagine a dog hair thick lodgepole pine stand and then picture what that stand looks like from the from, from the scale of perception of a snowshoe hare. So get down on your hands and knees, lay on the ground, and your eyes are now at about 10 inches or so off the ground. That's what a snowshoe hare is going to be seen. In a dense lodgepole stand, uh, they're going to be protected from predators. Generally, they can escape. They're going to have uh, uh, pine boughs at snow level so they can reach them to, to feed on. And, uh, you know, they can make a living in that. Hmm. Now, they may also move out into a burned area during the spring, summer, and fall that has a, a fairly dense layer of ceanothus and other vegetation because during the non-snow months, that provides a good layer of forage and cover at their eye level. But if you add four or five feet of snow into that open area, there's no longer any cover at their eye level. So they're going to have to shift their use into a stand that does provide that, that cover at their, from their, uh, their level of view. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and I could take, take almost any species and give some examples like that of how their needs change based on the time of year, their reproductive status, their need for forage or, or to escape predators, and whether there's snow on the ground or not. That's always a big uh, component here in the West. Um, so I, from a from a wildlife and a, and a hunter hunter standpoint, I guess, how long in some of, you know, like, is it two years? Is that when it's prime? You know, I, you see a lot of people hunt burn areas for elk, say, or, or deer. Um, is it two years? Is it is it prime time when I'm when I'm cruising the Onyx and looking at burn <laughs> burned out areas? You know, uh, two is a good place to start. Uh, <laughs> again, it depends on how intense the fire was and and the patchy nature or uh, basically the pattern that the fire burned. Um, mm. So there's a range, and in moderate moderate to low intensity fires, uh, at the end of that next year, it can be really good. Two to six or eight years, in my opinion, is prime for a lot of the ungulates that we hunt. That's when your right. shrubs, your shrubs and forbs and grasses have had a chance to recover more and start to provide that some visual screening. So things like elk are a little more comfortable spending time in there. And another factor, though, is 
whether you have open motorized access into those areas. Hmm. If you have low human disturbance or more difficult access getting into some of these recovering burned areas, then things like elk are going to have uh, more secure foraging areas than if you have ATV trails and mountain bike trails and roads crisscrossing that landscape. That plays a part into how comfortable those elk are going to be in that setting and how effectively they're going to be able to utilize that, you know, that good forage resource that's now recovering. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we had, you had a note too about, about motorized access and, and motorized access mainly for, um, kind of, kind of that fire stuff, um, or, or maybe just as a topic, uh, motorized access. Are, are you saying that in, in kind of these harder to get to, maybe the elk will use it for longer as well? Maybe, you know, like the burn area, they might, they might use it for 15 years or something because it's harder to get to and there's not as many people pushing them around. Yeah. They're going to use it as long as they feel comfortable using it. And as long as it continues to provide uh, a good forage source. Now, some places like this uh, say that they've burned and you're five or eight years post fire and they're recovering. If you do have quite a bit of human disturbance there, elk may use it just at night or they may use it just during pre brief periods of the year when human activity is less in there. Um, where you don't have that motorized or high human disturbance, you may find more daily and night use um, over more months of the year. Um, but when you talk about uh, access and roads and what that means to firefighting, um, over the years I've heard a lot of debates and discussions about uh, what roads mean to not just fire suppression, but to fire starts, the potential for human fire starts, hmm. um, there, our ability to use uh, roads as fire breaks, and then what that means to the hunter for access so you have reasonable access to get into an area and get game out uh, without compromising the security uh, of the elk or other wildlife so that they'll actually use the area. And I keep using elk as an example here because they're, they've been the poster child for the debate on road closures, uh, motorized access, and enhancing forage through logging, grazing, burning. And uh, the best science out there says you basically cannot decouple forage from security habitat. Um, I hear a lot of agencies and, and folks who want to uh, do some logging and burning and, and, and maybe livestock grazing and then tout all the benefits that they're providing for elk and deer in that area. But the truth is, if it's crisscrossed with, with disturbance, uh, motorized trails, et cetera, it's the effectiveness of that newly created forage is going to be way lower than if you were to reduce or eliminate uh, that, that motorized disturbance. Hmm. So um, there's just a lot of science out there that used elk because elk seem to be more sensitive to that disturbance than, than deer or some of the other species that we work with. Um, but you think about a, a landscape that uh, is open to the public, it's public land and it's crisscrossed with really high densities of roads and I have personally worked on landscapes that have had road densities from zero to almost eight miles per square mile of habitat. It's almost, wow. it's almost hard to imagine. You literally 
you literally could shoot a, a compound bow from one road to the next uh, wow. in those really high lands, high densities. Uh, two to five miles per square mile is not that uncommon across a lot of public lands in the West of, of, of roads. And in those type of settings, it's really tough for elk to find security. Um, and so when you start uh, closing some of those roads, that's when the debates start about closing people off of their public lands or shutting people off out of their public lands. The truth is, um, I think roads need to be thinned just like trees in some cases. Hmm. Uh, that, that's not an original thought. A friend of mine who was a, a research uh, range scientist for years here in, in La Grande in Central Oregon, I think he might have come up with that idea of thinning roads. Okay. So you, so you take a landscape with five miles per square mile of road. So what if you closed the majority of those and you ended up with a mile and a half per square mile of road? You can still get in there on a mountain bike or an ATV or a truck or whatever and access that entire area on foot fairly reasonably. But you've reduced a lot of potential negative effects of having all those roads open. So with high road densities, you end up with increased chance of noxious weed spread. They're spread by vehicles, uh, seeds that get stuck under ATVs and on tires and things. So you end up with noxious weed spread back in there and in, uh, in the, on these roads, you end up with higher road maintenance costs for the agencies who are already suffering pretty low budgets that aren't able to uh, maintain the road system up to standards. And it's not, not just a matter of the road starting to look ugly and be inconvenient and rough. It's a matter of uh, culverts washing out, sediment dumping into streams where you might have federally listed fish species or sensitive amphibian species living there, um, affecting the long-term, uh, you know, function of the soils and, and the watersheds there. Um, I think there's a, uh, there's also increased chance of litter, uh, vandalism to, uh, public land infrastructure, like signs and fences and gates and things. There's um, just there's just there's just something about a national forest sign that begs to be shot with a shotgun for some reason. I, I, I know. I, it. I don't know. I don't know what, yeah. what the appeal is there, <laughs> but um, there's just something about it. You know, you it, you can't see a you can't see a new one up very long before it's got holes in it. Which is really sad because uh, our public land legacy is so amazing and so unique in the world, and these very people that would do something like that are out there enjoying themselves, doing whatever they choose to do. But, um, yeah, I hope, uh, I, I wish more of those folks would get caught in the act, but more importantly, over the long term, I wish more public land users would learn to appreciate what goes into putting those signs up and what they really mean to our, our enjoyment and the benefit mm -hmm. to our society as a whole. Yeah. Um, so but yeah. another, another topic, well, another issue with roads, uh, that you hear fire folks talk a lot about is if, if an agency closes a road, then it makes it more challenging or time consuming to get back in there to fight a fire. Well, first of all, the chance of a fire starting back in there from human causes is lower because you don't have everyone driving back and forth in there. Now you might have a human caused fire from a hunter who walks in there, starts a little warming fire because it's nice and cool and drizzly that day, but then they walk away and within the next eight to 10 hours, 
uh, the clouds blow away, it warms up. And next thing you know, you have a wildfire. Hmm. Some of that happens. But when you have a, let's say a gate or a a metal barricade on a road, um, agencies, public land management agencies uh, allow for administrative access. So when, when a, uh, a fire starts back in there, fire crews can swing that gate open or remove that metal barricade and get in there. Now, if it hasn't been used in years, they may be having to cut out some trees that have fallen, uh, but they can get in there. Sure. Now, in, in the cases where the road has been closed with an earthen berm, where a bulldozer has put up this big earthen berm, if a fire starts back in there and it's too far for fire crews to walk or they need to get an engine into, it would take a, a piece of machinery to knock that thing down and open that road up. But I think the trade-offs over the long term of reducing open road densities, but keeping closed roads open for administrative uses, far the benefits far outweigh of just leaving all motor all motorized routes open to everybody all the time. Hmm. Uh, there's and, no and, question in my mind there. And that's from a and that's from a wildlife perspective that the benefits to wildlife. Um, in, in this instance, we're going to focus on elk. The, the benefits to elk would be immense if you were able to remove, like lower the density per square mile of just motorized. You know, also when, when those roads aren't having everyone to access them, um, you're not having logs and snags being cut down for firewood. So species like the pileated we mentioned and uh, red tree squirrels and uh, the other woodpeckers and other things are benefiting, not just elk. But further than just wildlife, uh, the human recreation experience, I think, is enhanced because we have this whole spectrum of conditions on public lands from wilderness areas where you can't use mechanized or motorized equipment. Um, So it's either livestock or foot in there. Mm -hmm. You've got this uh, backcountry zones in some states that uh, allow some some allow motorized backcountry use. Others are non-motorized backcountry use. But in those backcountry areas, you can use your mountain bike or you can use a game cart to wheel out game, which you can't do in a wilderness. And then you've got the working part of the forest or the Forest Service refers to as general forest. That's where you see the whole plethora of logging and thinning and burning and livestock grazing, et cetera, going on. Christmas tree cutting. In, in yeah, Christmas tree exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and firewood, yeah, firewood gathering. So in yeah. that setting, I think it's important to have a, a spectrum of opportunities for those who want to go out and ride their motorcycle or their ATV or their truck and just drive for pleasure and look. Um, but there should also be part of that landscape for the person who wants a quieter uh, experience, but maybe aren't physically able or have the capability of access in that backcountry and wilderness. Because uh, you take uh, someone who has physical limitations or from either age or injury that could park at a gate and walk on a flat, closed road and enjoy seeing wildlife or hunting or or gathering, getting that kind of experience uh, without having to share it with somebody on a motorcycle or an ATV, uh, you know, going past them, which is probably going to be displacing some wildlife and so you see where I'm going it, it, sure. by, sure. by closing some some roads in areas on general forest and having that spectrum from highly roaded and high disturbance to almost to very low disturbance in wilderness. It provides more more activity opportunities for more people. 
Sure. I, you know, and, and I have a, an example here in Colorado that uh, I would I would like your opinion on. So out by Steamboat, uh, just, just by chance, they're having these new mountain bike trails built um, around the Steamboat area. And there's there's a lot of concern with with the mountain bikers seemingly displacing a lot of elk in kind of their um, in their calving zones in the spring on these mountain bike trails. So again, non-motorized, right? These people are pedaling around, um, doing their thing, but they're still displacing wildlife. Yeah, we're kind of veering off of the uh, the fire wildfire sure. wildlife <laughs> thing, but but I'm glad you're getting into this because. I think more hunters and more public land recreationists needs to needs to hear and understand what we're starting to see around the West. Um, let's go back uh, 25, 30 years ago when I started my career. Um, a lot of these forests that I've worked on would only see a pulse of human activity in the fall. So during the summer, there were mount, some mountain bikers, some people driving for pleasure and some firewood cutters. And then in the fall, you would have this archery season for deer and elk uh, bow season. And then you'd start having your rifle deer and elk seasons that are scattered through October, November, early December. So you had these pulses of human activity. Um, and then in winter, some backcountry skiers, uh, cross country skiers, et cetera, and snowshoers. Um, as more people started to uh, recognize this, uh, these values of living near public land in places like Bend, Oregon, or several of the the cities and towns along the front there in Colorado, along the Rocky Mountain front in Montana. Mm -hmm. You see it all over the West. Um, energetic people who want to get out and be physical and connect, do something in the in wildlands and public lands. We've seen this trend toward more people in the woods um, for more times of the year and not just daytime either. There's um, I'll back up here a little bit in Oregon right where I live, we used to not have wild turkeys uh, and spring bear seasons were quite limited uh, with increases in bear spring bear hunts. And now spring turkey hunts, we started seeing more hunters in April, April, May, and June. So there was another pulse with sure. mountain bike, with mountain bikers, mountain climbers, uh, snowmobilers, uh, cross country races. Uh, some of these ultra marathons that run 24 hours um, and then the popularity of mountain bikes where the, the bike, the bike trails and roads that were provided by the agencies, uh, the demand outgrew the supply. So people started pioneering their own routes. Sure. And uh, you, we were really seeing where we think just this around the clock, around the calendar presence and activity of people is starting to displace some wildlife. And, uh, it's we're just now over the last few years starting to recognize this as being an issue. Mm -hmm. um, and a friend of mine in uh, Bend, Oregon, uh, Lori Turner, she works for the forest service there on the Deschutes national forest. She's kind of, uh, she's been working on this issue on her forest over the last few years with several partners looking at how you can model uh, secure areas for wildlife and be strategic about where you develop uh, these uh, mountain bike trails, uh, with, and still maintain some secure areas for wildlife. Hmm. And uh, I think that's happening in more and more places as we recognize it's becoming more, more of an issue.
Sure. And, and you can just in my, again, I'm not, uh, I'm not a Colorado native as it were, uh, I've been here six, seven years. Um, but you can see it already changing in the amount of over-the-counter licenses in certain areas that are, you know, mountain towns or whatnot that are very, very popular areas um, that are now a draw unit uh, for archery and, and into for, or second and third rifles um, just because of the, the calf, calving retention that they're losing Um and, you know, a lot of the time it's it's just said that they, they don't know why the numbers are going down, but they know that the numbers are going down and, and you can look at it and it's all of these kind of very, very popular mountain towns, right? That are, you can recreate there year round. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's tough to keep up with the technology. It seems like every time I turn around, there's a new machine, whether it, it looks like a motorcycle, but it has snowmobile tracks on it. Sure. Um, UT- UTVs, uh, where the ATV has has evolved into this big thing that's about the size of a Suzuki Samurai now. Yeah. It's like we're re- recreating the full size vehicle with these off road vehicles. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, there's some members of the public out there that believe because it exists and because it's sold, they have a right to use it anywhere they want to on public lands. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily the case. Um, just because you can go buy a Lamborghini that'll go 200 miles an hour doesn't mean you're allowed to drive it on the highway at that speed. At 200 miles an hour, yeah. So, exactly. I, I like the, uh, you know, the, I, I, I'm not going to try to stir the pot. I, I, I mountain <laughs> bike, so, you know, take that for what it's worth. But um, e, e-bikes, right? These electronic bikes kind of came out and, and the oh, idea yeah. that the idea that they would be called anything other than a... Uh, or classified as anything other than a motorcycle where, where the definition seems pretty obvious. It's a motor on a cycle, right? It's a, it's a yep. motor on a bicycle. Um, yeah. It seems, seems kind of, it's very interesting to me that people would argue that it is not the same thing. Um, you know, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to when I can get a, uh, a dirt bike, say, that that is electric right it's quiet and you can like go mm-hmm. all over the place with it um, <laughs> you're just full you're just full of good topics today <laughs> and I, I tell you um you're hitting all, you're pushing all my buttons uh <laughs> of things that i have strong opinions on and when i was working for the forest service i couldn't necessarily share those opinions as Hmm. as uh, directly as I wanted to. (laughs) I I, I made it a priority to stick to what the science tells us and try to be fair about, uh, you know, how we manage public lands. And I think that should continue. But um, so e-bikes are an interesting one. And I think it's important to think about when when an agency closes a road to general public access, why are they closing it? Um, If it's being closed, let's say just for a short period of time during fire season, it's because fire resources are being stretched so thin. They don't want fires to start way back in there mm-hmm. uh, on, a, on that, a bigger portion of the landscape uh, where they're more difficult to get to. Uh, and we end up with more human fire starts to, that spreads the fire resources even thinner. Um, so if that's the case, well, maybe an e-bike doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't, represent the risk of a internal combustion engine. Um, so perhaps it's, if it's just because of the risk for fire starts from the machine, 
then it may not be a risk. Now, what it does do, it allows someone to get way back into an area, maybe behind a gate that's open to the e-bike, and that's where they start the warming fire, or they start a campfire, or throw a cigarette butt down. Um, now, the machine didn't start the fire, but the fire still was started way back in there where it's maybe difficult for a crew to get into. Sure, and, and, so, and I'm going to interrupt because my favorite my favorite way that these – not my favorite. It's not my favorite. The Maybe the most comical way these fires get started is someone trying to burn their toilet paper. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm a toilet paper burner myself. Okay. But, okay but I'm extremely careful about it. And sure. uh, if it's a time of year when it's absolutely not safe, I'll bury it or pack it out. I sure. carry a Ziploc bag. Um, and, but uh, I, I, sure. I recognize that as a source and uh, there's sure. been some big sure. fires. <laughs> so <laughs> <Some> big um, <laughs> yeah, that have turned into, turned into big fires because of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then there's the uh, also, if you have a road that's closed, to reduce disturbance to, to wildlife. Again, I'll use elk. Uh, elk and other wildlife are disturbed by motorized uh, vehicles. Well, the fact that the mountain, the e-bike the e is quiet, someone might surmise that, well, if I take this back in there, I'm not disturbing the wildlife. Um, another component, though, that I think our, the hunting culture has grown to understand is that a closed road provides you with a fairly an easier but quiet access into a piece of public land. And um, so if you get up earlier than everybody else and you put the effort into getting back in there before everybody else, then you should, in your mind, have first dibs at hunting that area. Well, you get almost to the spot you plan to go, and here comes an e-bike, zips right by you. There's this whole fairness discussion that comes into play. Um, and, I, and I think... Uh, agencies really need to be looking at when they close a road to general public access, they need to be clear about uh, the reason or the multiple reasons they're closing it. And I think more of them should be for uh, fire risk, wildlife disturbance, and uh, to provide a range of op uh, recreational opportunities. And in those cases, I think they sh those should be closed to all things with a motor not necessarily wheels, but a motor or an engine to get at that fairness thing. Mm. Now, um, I, I enjoy mountain biking too. Um, I don't do nearly as much of it as I used to, but um, mountain bikes are not without their effects to wildlife too. Mm -hmm. And I've got a personal observation I'll share with you. And I'll also mention a study that was done here legally or locally uh, in Northeast Oregon. Um, the Pacific Northwest Research Station here in Lagrand. Some of the scientists there, along with Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife researchers, um, uh, did did some studies in the Starkey Experimental Forest, and one of them, uh, headed up by Mike Wisdom, looked looked at uh, a comparison of the effects of ATVs, mountain bikes, horseback riding, and hiking. So they put radio collars on on uh, elk. And, and ran these trials on a set, uh, a network of trails. Um, and then they would rest at the area for a few days. And then they would run, do the, run the, the horseback riders on those same trails. And then it would rest. And then they would have hikers. And then they would rest at you know, mountain bikers, et cetera. And they measured the response of the elk to those disturbances. 
and in in by their response by like how far they would move away from uh, a few things okay. uh, how how far was the was the perceived disturbance from when the animal started moving uh, how quickly it moved or the velocity um, how far it moved and how long it took for it to return to pre-disturbance activity because you think there's an energy expenditure when you disturb an animal and it stops feeding or resting or chewing its cud and it has to run until it feels secure and it hangs out and then it returns to doing what it was doing before you came around. Mm -hmm. That's an energy expenditure that may take away from it avoiding predators or producing milk or producing a calf. You know, those those more sure. important those more important things in an animal's life. So I'll, I'll just simply re, uh, summarize the results to that. The motorized, the ATVs, caused the animals to start moving when the, uh, further away from the, from the disturbance. So the, the animals detected the disturbance much further away than the other three sources of transportation. They ran faster and further, and it took them longer to return to pre-disturbance activities with the ATV disturbance. And then I think what might have surprised a lot of people, I think a, a lot of folks expected horseback hiking and mountain biking to be grouped way down lower in those effects. Well, mountain bikes came in a second, uh, a second underneath ATVs. And then, then quite a bit lower than that were the effects of horseback and hiking. So horseback and hiking had similar effects in, uh, in all those factors that were measured that I mentioned. And um, in my opinion, the, uh, the mountain bikes probably have that effect, a little bit greater effect in the fact that they are quiet, but they're faster and they all of a sudden appear to an animal. Hmm. So let's say I heard an elk are, are feeding in a meadow, a meadow that's otherwise quite quiet and they aren't used to having people coming through there. Um, and all of a sudden, here's a machine with a person on it, even and, and it's quiet, and it's there. Mm -hmm. And so they, they they respond by running and, and seeking cover. Mm -hmm. And um, and so my personal observation with a totally different species was in the Elkhorn Mountains. I was helping the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife with uh, the annual mountain goat uh, comp survey where we count the goats and uh, – look at the, the composition of the herd, males, females, yearlings, and kids. And I, there's a ridge trail that's open to uh, motorized. It's not a wilderness area. It's open to motorized and uh, mountain bikes and hikers. And um, it used to not get very much traffic. Mostly it was foot traffic. And now it gets quite a bit more. But um, I'm watching a group of billies. Um, they were all spread out on a hillside. They weren't really grouped together, but... They saw me and they looked at me and I'm trying to confirm that they're actually billies. And uh, next thing you know, they get up and they run as fast as they can up and over the ridge into the next basin. And I turned to look behind me and a mountain biker had just appeared in that basin. And he rides along. It takes him a few minutes to get to me. And I talked to him for a minute and he asked me what I was doing. And I explained and then he stopped to have some lunch or something. And I walked into another basin where there was a group of nannies, kids, and yearlings. And I started comping those. And next thing you know, uh, 20 minutes into this, they take off running. 
And I turn around and that same mountain biker had just entered my basin again. Now, very small sample size. It's, it's an anecdotal observation, but we believe with, with, with mountain goats, a nanny is a great mother as long as things are going okay. But when the crap hits the fan, it's every goat for themselves. And those nannies took off and left some of those little kids in the rocks that were struggling to try to keep up. Mm. Um, that, that could predispose those kids to predation from golden eagles or cougars or bobcats, you know, whatever sure. might seek them out. But again, it was an energy expenditure that to me, it was blatantly obvious that those things kind of freaked out from this fast moving, quiet vehicle. And it wasn't really that fast, but it was faster than I could walk. Hmm. And in both, and in both circumstances, those goats knew I was there because they clearly looked at me and I didn't, they didn't perceive me as a threat. Sure. Sure. So in, in, anyway, in, in, in your opinion, in your opinion, do you think it's the speed or the fact that like it looks so different, right? Being on a bicycle versus just hiking or walking, you know, like, is, is it maybe, a, maybe both the, both of those things, you know, cause it is, it is interesting, right? Yeah, you know, it's hard to put yourself into an animal's head. Uh, but my gut tells me it's probably not the visual as much as it is the speed. Hmm. Uh, and the reason I say that is is the way I've seen animals respond when I'm on horseback versus me walking. Um, some animals, they see me walking and they'll run. Uh, but if I'm in that, on a horse's back, those same species might look at me and go back to feeding. Or just look at me and stand there and be curious. So I don't think mm-hmm. they're they're reasoning that look, there's another animal with four legs like me, and there's something sitting on its back. <laughs> <laughs> I, sh- I should sure. I should be suspicious of this, uh, but that's just me speculating. Um, it's tough to get into an animal's head. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> sure. I mean, it makes sense, you know, that uh, bikes bikes go fast. You know, uh, go fast, pretty easy, and they're and they're quiet easy to sneak up on people. Um, I have have one more question and then we we can, uh, we can be done today. We we've been running on kind of a long time. I want to ask, and and maybe this is a long question. We we can cut it short, but fire restrictions. Um, I know in in Colorado, we kind of have stage one, stage two. Um, I'm not sure how, you know, it works in Oregon and if that's the same stage one, stage two. Um, What do those mean and how, you know, sometimes, especially this, this fall in, in Colorado, we had stage, um, stage two fire restrictions and it was snowing outside. Okay. You know, yeah. Good you know? question. So that, I believe that varies by state because I'm, I don't recognize the stages that you're referring to, but what okay. I'm used to are two levels. There's a industrial fire precaution level and there's personal use fire restrictions. So the, Industrial refers to being able to run a chainsaw or logging operations or road building equipment and things that use equipment on the forest. And uh, at least in Oregon, those typically will go into effect when uh, fire conditions start getting to a point in the summer. We start getting concerned about wildfires starting from human causes. And so a lot of times those initially come in slowly with restrictions uh, after say one o'clock in the afternoon. So those type of operations can work from oh dark 30 until early afternoon, then they have Mm. to shut down. As the fire season progresses, uh, restrictions start increasing on those uses and they can be shut down completely. Um, Then there's the personal use fire restrictions where it's basically you and I uh, 
going out into the forest to camp or hunt or whatever, those levels tell us whether we can have a campfire or not, or whether we can have a campfire only in a designated uh, campground in a fire ring. Um, and in a lot of cases, high elevation wilderness areas uh, don't have fire restrictions a lot of times. I think because the the fuels are discontinuous up there in the rocky high elevations, and um, there may be other reasons for having fire restrictions as far as visuals or burning up all the wood, et cetera. But some, oftentimes wilderness, some wilderness areas don't have the same restrictions as you'd find elsewhere. Um, but it's really important for anyone who recreates on public lands during the fire seasons to get online or check in with the local government office that manages that land to find out what the restrictions are. And uh, when I used to work as a uh, forest protection officer, it was some supplemental duties to being a biologist. I would come into a, a, a hunting camp in October and it would be drizzling snow and they're just cussing me because there's fire restrictions and they can't have a campfire. Um, the reasons are, I think those folks don't see the bigger picture that are what our fire managing folks see and know. They, we may have a weather front that's coming in and literally in less than 24 hours, there could, we could go from fairly low fire risk in that area to extremely high fire, high fire risk. And maybe the local fire uh, resources are deployed to California or North Carolina or other places. And we know in a short period of time, conditions could change and we're not going to have the local resources to put out there and, uh, you know, and deal with those fires. So it can be tough uh, to explain to someone who's standing in the rain why they can't have a campfire. But <laughs> why they can, can't be warm. I, in my experience, fire managers are very sensitive to people being able to recreate and be comfortable out there. So as soon as they're comfortable with relaxing those restrictions, they will relax them and the decision maker on that forest or our BLM area will make that decision. So, cool. you know, to release it. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, Mark, I, I appreciate it. We covered a lot of topics. We've talked for a while. Um, I appreciate you uh, troubleshooting our technical difficulties and, and getting this podcast in today. So I appreciate yeah. that as well. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I mean, uh, for everybody else out there, we'll, We'll have another um, podcast sometime soon. This one will get posted up. If you have any questions, comments, uh, concerns for us, uh, you can send those to podcasts at seekoutside.com. Uh, and yeah, again, thanks, Mark. Thank you very much. And everybody have a great day. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.